And that's tomorrow. And to get us started today, all right, I don't know what, whatever it is, it's not right on the teleprompter. I don't know what that is. I've never seen that. No, there it is. We're going to do the, you know, introduction. But here. I can't read it. No, there's, there's no words there. Okay, ready? There's no words there to play us in. What does that mean, to play us in? Always, always, Rhett's going to do, you know, our what introductory is? song for the introduction. I don't know what that means, to play us in. What does that mean? To start the show? Yeah. yeah. Okay, go. Go. In five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and to start... <clears throat> and again, five, four, three. That's tomorrow, and to get us started today, we will... Can't do it. Okay. Can't do it. We'll do it live. Okay. Oh, oh no. We'll do it live! it! We'll do it live! I can... I'll write it. We'll do it live! Thing sucks! We can't do it live! This is a recorded podcast. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us right now. Let's just get started with the Always Right Show. I'm Jake Bronkert. Thanks for listening. You think we're stupid? This will be all about socializing our own. Basically, taking over and the government running all of your companies. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If you got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. But we have to pass the bill. We have to, have to pass the bill. We have to pass the bill. But we have to pass the bill so that you can... Find out what is in it. I just noticed that uh, I got the Thanks for tuning in to episode five of Always Right. We got a great show for you. But let's first start it off with the news. John McCain recently stated that Hillary Clinton would most likely win the presidency if elections were held tomorrow. When asked why he believed she would win, reporters stated that they were only able to understand the mumblings of Maverick and my friends by the 77-year-old senator. Maverick. Listen to me, my friends. Uh, a new report about libertarians say that young people uh, plan to be very active in the 2014 midterm races through a Ron Paul support group called Liberty Action Fund. This group plans to support more liberty-minded constitutional candidates. When Democratic chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz was asked for a comment, she only responded with stating that they must be racist. In pop culture news, Justin Bieber says he cannot be broken in a new song. This follows him being busted for drunk driving and drugs in Florida. Uh, some members of Congress have asked Canada to reclaim Justin Bieber, to which the Canadian ambassador stated, no givesy backsies. Also in unimportant pop culture news, Jennifer Lopez will be starring in an upcoming FBI drama series that she is co-producing with Ryan Seacrest for NBC next year. It is said to be a 13-episode complex police series that centers on Lopez's character, a single mother and detective recruited to work undercover for the FBI's anti-corruption task force. I am sure it will be awful. In international news, uh, protests have broken out in Ukraine and Venezuela. In Venezuela, uh, Marta Rivas, a 39-year-old mother of two, uh, said she joined thousands of protesters in opposition uh, in the city of San Cristobal. Uh, because of uh, the inability to buy uh, a kilo of flour in such a rich country. Uh, they are currently living in misery. Uh, when Socialist President Maduro was asked to explain, uh, he said that everyone is equal, but government supporters are more equal than others. 
And uh, Secretary of State John Kerry recently uh, complained about the government crackdown of protesters. Uh, President Maduro uh, actually said that Kerry's words gave the green light for more violence. Uh, Kerry responded by stating that he does support green energy. And finally, Christine O'Donnell, a former 2010 Republican Senate candidate for, from Delaware, claimed to be a victim of the IRS. When the former witch was asked for what proof she had against the IRS, she only stated that they used a lot of hocus-pocus. Uh, now for a brief uh, catch-up on the current Olympic Games, we go out to our correspondent Boris to see uh, how uh, his country is doing in the Olympics. Boris? <laughs> we are beating you. <laughs> told you, Americans. Told you we are better. Okay, that, okay, that we don't need more Boris. Okay, uh, great rest of the show coming up for you guys. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Aaron Winneconnect on the importance of uh, conservative social media usage. And also the Committee on Intelligence will tackle the current administration's handling of Iran and Syria. Stick around. This episode of Always Right might have been sponsored by... Oil. Because we still use it, and it still works. Oil. Go fill up your car. All right, now on uh, Always Right, I decided uh, that we needed to talk a little bit about social media, which is obviously what Always Right is uh, so connected to. And so I brought in uh, perhaps uh, one of the top guys in conservative social me media right now, Aaron Windeconnect. I met Aaron, actually, uh, we both worked on the Rick Santorum presidential campaign together. And uh, Aaron now is the new media director for uh, campaign headquarters in Iowa and uh, actually is, manages some of the top Facebook and Twitter uh, accounts uh, for conservatives across the nation with the big one being the Comical Conservative uh, on Facebook, which has over 412,000 likes right now. Uh, and uh, if you add that to some of the other ones like Voting Republican uh, and a handful of others, he's got well over a reach of half a million which is absolutely astounding. So, Aaron, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, hey, thanks for having me, man. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, well, hey, and let's just jump right in. Uh, you know, obviously with the election, uh, the 2012 presidential election not going the way that we had hoped uh, and that, uh, you know, that just, you know, there were so many races that also got affected by it, not even just the presidential one. Um, and so much of that, I think, was due to social media. Um, I, I wanted to, first off, I'm going to read you a figure, actually. This is kind of interesting uh, from a, a Yahoo article about the social media presence between President Obama and uh, candidate Mitt Romney. This was at the uh, conclusion of the first presidential debate uh, where Mitt Romney's campaign posted a photo of their candidate and his wife, Anne, on Instagram. It garnered 3,500 likes. Barack Obama's campaign posted a photo of the president at the debate podium. More than 65,300 people liked that. Could you explain, Aaron, how far behind we as conservatives, uh, you know, Republicans are when it comes to social media? Well, I think it's a couple of factors, honestly. So, like, you know, even like for starters, um, when you look at Barack Obama, he's got kind of a head start. Like being being like president um, allows him to garner more likes than, let's say, if he had ran for president and lost like Mitt Romney did. Um, like basically Barack Obama had his entire first term of president to build up a ginormous social media following. Um, he had a large presence in the beginning because he was able to capture a lot of the youth vote back in 2008. 
Um, but he was really able to build on that and use all the organizational strength that he had from those years to continue building a very solid uh, organization in terms of social media work. Um, so right off the beginning, or right off the bat, like you've got Mitt Romney at a giant disadvantage. Um, the other part of it that I really think sort of explains um, at least the differences in the presidential social media work um, is that Barack Obama's team, uh, the people that ran the majority of his Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything else, just really got what young people were looking for. And that's not to say that all of the, like, the people on Facebook happen to be young. I mean, there's obviously a very large percentage that are, uh, you know, under 30. Um, but, you know, it's just a very different kind of group than, than conservatives are used to reaching out to. Um, and I think that uh, what happens is conservatives felt like they were behind, which they were, and they tried too hard to catch up. Like in trying too hard, mm. they came off as disingenuous in a lot of ways, if that kind of makes sense. So, yeah. it, you know, Barack Obama is um, when he reaches out to people on Facebook or Twitter, um, it comes off as very natural. It comes off as very likable and people genuinely flock to the genuineness of what he's doing and Mitt Romney looked like he was trying too hard and that's that's not going to get you engagement well and I, I think a big thing that I know uh, and you probably heard it too about the Romney campaign was how unnecessarily controlled it was um, I, I actually talked uh, on the last episode with a uh, documentary filmmaker uh, Aaron Schnock and he had talked about the uh, documentary Mitt um, and how that kind of the campaign handlers, he said, did refuse to let the documentary come out during the election time. That's why it just recently came to Netflix. Um, I think, as you point out, the sincerity of kind of uh, President Obama's tweets and Facebook posting and Instagrams and all that um, has built up a big following. And you know who else is really popular is a fellow Iowan, uh, Senator Grassley. And people say because he just does some of the best tweets out there. Um, now, obviously, as both both you and I are from Iowa, and I know there's a, a very interesting Senate race coming up there among uh, some other campaigns, um, and you and I both get saturated with TV ads, radio ads. Tell me what social media can do, because I feel like Republicans, as you pointed out, they, they got walloped in 2008 on social media. 2012, they tried too hard to sprint and just catch right up and follow exactly what the Obama team was doing. What is it, why, like, what is the importance essentially of social media? You know, how can we, we I feel like we need to still explain it to people why it's so important. Well, uh, the biggest problem, um, at least that I see when I deal with different conservative organizations um, and, and candidates too, is that when they think of social media, they think, what can I get out of social media? And like the mentality of that is completely wrong starting out. Um, if you go into Facebook thinking, okay, like how many email addresses am I going to get out of this? Like how many people am I going to get engaged? Like how do I make this work for me? You're going you're gonna to completely fail. The, like basically like the reason why my pages have been so successful and I've, we've hardly spent any money. I mean the, the entire ad revenue for the entire page just to get to like 400,000 plus people was less than $1,000 over wow. two years. Very, <laughs> wow. very small. And honestly, we didn't even spend any money at all until we'd already had over 250,000. These are all organic likes and it's only time-based uh, quality content that was able to organically grow the page. So when people look uh, to get onto Facebook and they like, you know, they throw money at it, um, there, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, so basically, 
what I would suggest that a majority of conservatives and Republicans do if they want to get better at social media is make their first question, not what can I get out of this, but what can I provide for people that is going to make them want to engage. The reason why my pages are successful is because I think, okay, like what am I going to be able to give them that's going to make them want to take this to their, their friends and family and show them as well? Because once you've achieved that, once you've gotten someone invested in, uh, in giving them something that's valuable to them, and you know what? What could be valuable to them is like getting a laugh at the office. You know, it could be like showing somebody a video on YouTube. It could be anything. Um, only when you provide a large amount of quality content that only directly benefits them can you then ask for something in return. So you know, if I ask someone to sign up for an email list, it's only because I've earned the right to. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and and I think uh, you know because of the oversaturation of traditional advertising routes at you know, TV and radio because there's limits that you know there's only so much airtime on both those avenues to go through uh, social media to me uh, and correct me if I'm wrong but it's a way to almost um, activate your activists because they have to go through the process of liking your page you know getting on Facebook and seeing what you're writing whereas TV and radio you're trying to catch people while they're doing something else this is almost getting those people that are already interested enough to search for you more um, connected and hopefully more active. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the purpose of every post that goes up on Facebook, for instance, and I'm much better at Facebook than I am at anything else. Um, you know, I mean, I have a decent amount of Twitter followers, but it's nothing compared to what I have on Facebook. Um, and, you know, everything that goes into my mind is how do I get someone first to look at my content, which is a very hard thing to do. I mean, when someone is scrolling through their Facebook news feed, you maybe have a fraction of a second. So there's a lot of techniques that go into creating something that is both going to be visually stimulating in order to, them to at least look at your content. And then, you know, just looking at it doesn't actually help you in terms of spreading your message. Um, because the way that the Facebook algorithm works is if even if they see it, that's that's fine and dandy, but they need to engage with it. So how do we get someone to engage with it and how do we make them feel like they're putting their stamp of their values or their beliefs on something that I have provided for them? So a lot of the ways that you can do that is to have some sort of picture that promotes an idea or promotes a stance through some sort of unique or humorous way and to allow them a way to put their stamp on it by telling them to share if you agree. Now, a lot of people will say that that's kind of like farming the Facebook, uh, the Facebook algorithm, which is true, but I mean, that that is the best way to get people to do, um, to kind of engage with your content, to allow them to put their stamp on it through using one of Facebook's um, functions, basically, whether it's like or share or comment. All of those are very easy ways if you can utilize them in giving people the opportunity to show other people what they're all about. Well, I, I, yeah, I definitely still think, you know, I think the Republican Party as a whole is uh, they recognize that it's an issue. They're getting better at it. We'll see if they can get better at it by 2016, because obviously Hillary, uh, their team is already almost organically getting a huge amount of social media traffic. Uh, last point, though, Aaron, I want to ask you this, because I know a lot of younger people are starting to tell me this. You think Facebook's going out or is it going to be around for a while? 
Well, uh, it's a really good question. Um, so back in, uh, in December of this last year, Facebook made a very large change that uh, dropped the engagement and the reach of every single Facebook fan page. Now, a Facebook fan page is basically anything that's not a personal fan page, to clarify. Um, so like all of mine are fan pages, and every, every major account for anyone, including Barack Obama's, is qualified as a fan page. Um, and they've started to, as I'm sure that you've probably seen it, even in your personal posts, Facebook gives you the ability to pay to get a larger reach. Now, there's a lot of problems with this. Basically, if anyone has spent any sort of advertising over the past couple of years or any time during the first 10 years of Facebook, Facebook is now saying, okay, well, you paid money to get access to a lot of people. You have X number of people that like your page. And now we want you to pay to reach those people you already paid to get access to. So a lot of people are feeling very gypped about it. They're feeling like Facebook advertising is failing and that's going to drive a lot of like quality content onto other avenues that don't cost anywhere near as much. Um, Facebook is banking on people to stay because they obviously have a ginormous user base. Um, and the, the, another problem that Facebook is, is uh, heading into right now is that a lot of the younger teens aren't signing up for it. They're heading to things like Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat and Vine and other things that have kind of a different sort of experience and don't really require the same involvement that Facebook does. Um, so we're, we're seeing kind of uh, the younger generation starting to flee a little bit. I think it'll take a long time uh, for Facebook to, to really deplete because it's got such a ridiculous user base. Even if, even if Facebook was on the way out, it would probably take five to ten years for it to be dwindled down to something of, of non-importance. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, I totally agree, uh, Aaron. Obviously, uh, thanks for coming on, man. It was a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, the importance of social media. I try and tell people, you know, you're not too old to learn it. It is going to be a big thing in politics for a while to come, whether it's Facebook or not. Uh, Aaron Wynn to connect, new media director with campaign headquarters. Man, thanks so much for uh, coming on. Hey, no problem, man. Anytime. This episode of Always Right may have been sponsored by. <laughs> Did you hear what okay, I how said? did he get America's on here again? Losing the Can we just cut him off? Okay, <laughs> <He's> no. So <laughs> cut, cut him. I told you. Cut him now. And we're here on Always Right. We're going to be talking a little bit foreign policy on this episode uh, so that uh, issues like Iran and Syria don't fall in too much in the background with uh, the Olympics going on. And uh, I got a couple uh, experts here with us. Uh, first off is uh, Matthew Hurt. He's a libertarian activist and writer living in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, he writes about overreaching government for uh, Reason Magazine and other outlets. And he's also uh, uh, served in various capacities within the Republican Party and was a Ron Paul-aligned delegate in the 2012 Republican National Convention. And we also have Scott Blyweiss, uh, who wants you to know that he is an international relations professional uh, and a blogger on global politics for Foreign Policy Association. Uh, he's currently teaching English uh, as a second language in Bulgaria, uh, and uh, I can certainly vouch for his foreign policy credentials as we attended the same graduate school together and threw down together. So, gentlemen, thank you both for being on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, you know, uh, and, and first, uh, I, Matt, I got to ask you, is there is there Ron Paul aligned delegate? Now, there's a lot of negative things that like Ron Paul bot, Ron Paul, uh, you know, is, is there an accepted vernacular for Ron Paul supporter anymore? I just had to ask this first. 
Oh, you know, I think the, the term of affection is, is paltard still. <laughs> okay. and, and, and it's one that, that you know, we throw, uh, we throw around uh, in, in, in polite company. And, you know, I think, I think another term that we use now since Congressman Paul is, is no longer in office is, is a member of the liberty movement here in the United States. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, uh, obviously, we got our, our, our liberty, uh, our liberty activists, and we've got our Scott. We'll say you're left leaning. Uh, I'd say that's fair. As, as you, you're a pretty moderate guy, but you lean a little bit more to the left on more issues than not. And uh, so, actually, let, let's start with you, uh, and let's keep it uh, let's keep it local to start, because uh, we both went to uh, Joseph Corbell's graduate school for uh, international relations, and uh, a professor there that we both uh, studied under, Jonathan Edelman. Uh, wrote a op-ed saying that the Senate should support stronger sanction uh, legislation against Iran. Uh, now, obviously, uh, there, the big deal has been with the Obama administration's decision to kind of suspend sanctions. He, he wants it to open up a door to uh, hopefully reduce uh, nuclear, um, I guess, they don't, they don't want to say they're building a bomb, but they, they want to kind of pull them back from that edge a little bit. Can, can you explain uh, Obama's thought process and why this is a good move? Well, I think he's, you know, far be it for me to, to get into to the head of the president, but I, I would think that he is just trying to, to do something a little bit different. You know, sanctions have been the norm in terms of U.S. foreign policy towards Iran for, for decades now, and it's only... I think it's, it's certainly been successful to a certain extent, but it hasn't seemed to have had the desired effect in terms of getting Iran to pull back on their nuclear program. So uh, it's certainly a very tricky proposition, though, because uh, they have to, of course, have, be sure that the, uh, the, the nuclear program is not leading to, to the development of weapons. So I think he's almost kind of doing, and he has relaxed some sanctions recently, especially in terms of uh, freeing up money that could be used to give food to Iranians. So I don't think you can really say anything too badly about that. And just to, to see what the reaction is, to see what's going to happen. And of course, with Rouhani's president, uh, who is seen as a little bit more moderate, uh, definitely than Ahmadinejad, that maybe we'll see what his reaction to this. And if there's uh, some movement towards actually getting to an agreement, then maybe this could be the stepping stone to finally uh, reaching some level of consensus on their uh, nuclear their nuclear research. Okay. Well, I, I just, I mean, I, I guess they, they say he's more of a moderate. I think he's just dialed down his rhetoric a little bit in Iran. And, uh, I mean, well, actually, I mean, Scott, you're currently, as we're recording this, you are in Bulgaria. Does, does the international community, people outside the U.S., feel the, I mean, because historically, we in Iran have not been the closest of pals, uh, you know, for a while. Uh, yes, that's definitely true. Um, I, I think that the, the general consensus is that something needs to change. Kind of what, what has been practiced for the last you know, 30 or 40 years is it, it, it's just not having the desired effect of making us feel safer and making the region feel safer. Okay. I think the, the threat of, of an Iran um, you know, attack either on Israel or just kind of being more uh, aggressive in terms of their of their military actions is still there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, but again, it, it's a fine line because you don't want too many sanctions to provoke them into, into doing something. So, well, 
Yeah, I could see that. And I think I think the, the part where a lot of uh, people kind of go too far is when they say that Iran is essentially a unstable regime. It's a, it's a crazy actor. If it was crazy, it, it does have a large military. It would have just invaded Israel by now. It would have launched more attacks. That's what crazy people do. They don't act rationally. Uh, Matt, obviously, you know, probably coming more from the Liberty uh, wing, I'm guessing that you would probably agree with Scott that, uh, or, and maybe go further in saying that sanctions are not the way to uh, improve relations or uh, perhaps move the, uh, push the democracy and freedom movement. Is that right? Sure. I think that, that uh, in recent weeks, Senator Rand Paul has, has said that while we're in, in, in discussing these talks with Iran, that we really shouldn't um, increase the pressure by by increasing sanctions. I think what I think that we've seen over the last number of decades is, is, is cyclical saber rattling um, from, you know, not only from Iran, but also from from our State Department, our presidents, uh, going as far back as is is Jimmy Carter and even further. Um, so, so there is a there's a delicate balance. Like like you guys have said, he's not uh, the regime is not as crazy as we may make it out to be here. Just because they haven't uh, gone off half cocked and, and and invaded a neighboring country or, or Israel or or whatever. Um, but I do think that you know my my interest in in uh, in this debate and in foreign policy debates is that some criticisms of libertarians is that we are quote unquote isolational uh, isolationist oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not true because what i want to see uh, in iran and in other states that have these sorts of regimes is where we we open up trade and discussion and uh, you know we've got a, a, an embargo with with Cuba that that is decades old, and I would like to see things like that lifted because embargoes and and, and other blocks on on trade and, and and discourse and travel only hurts the people at the bottom on the ground, uh, you know. So so things like this are only hurting uh, everyday Iranians uh, who are going to work, going to school, being productive members of of you know their. Um, their society, and I think it, it's time to, to open up discussion and, and be a little more uh, welcoming uh, and open with them. But, but Matt, don't you want to stop communism? If we just start giving up on all these sanctions, the North Korea and Cuba are going to rise up and take us over with their great ideas. <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> we've seen that. It's a very different world than than pre uh, 1991. You know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. We're, we're dealing with a different kind of uh, tyranny uh, in, in these types of states. Um, and, and I ultimately think that if we allow, if we have this discourse and we uh, open up trade, and, and then then what we'll essentially be trading, in, in, in as much as we're trading goods and services, we're also trading democratic ideas. And so we may find us, ourselves in a situation where people on the ground decide they want to overthrow uh, the current existing government and replace it with something. What that is, you know, we should have a conversation about, but it's not necessarily the United States' position to enforce our style of, 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 uh, of democratic republicanism on on other nations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I mean, me personally, I, I think that uh, the sanctions, uh, and Scott, you kind of alluded to it, we've been using them, and but what is the ultimate end goal of sanctions? Is it so that we can 
you know, pacify Iran? Is it so that we can eventually become friends? Is it so we can get them to stop doing something? Um, and probably, and, uh, and I think the current administration is trying to do that. I don't like their current plan, which is very hush-hush in general, but it does seem to allow them to kind of just take a break and then fire the reactors back up if they want. But I, I did read that uh, one Republican congresswoman uh, sounded a bit hawkish when she said, no, we have to keep our boot down on their throat. That's the only thing they listen to. Uh, personally, if, if somebody was you know, sticking their boot on my throat, I would probably not want to listen to them. They probably wouldn't be my closest buddy. Uh, and I, you know, the idea that if we can just increase sanctions enough to make them totally sell out and be our pals, uh, I don't think is usually uh, the, the end means of uh, sanctions. But um, I, I want to kind of transition a little bit. Uh, but but first, too, uh, what, what are your guys thoughts on the importance of uh, trade and and kind of freeing up economics? Because, Matt, I think this is where you and I will definitely agree that sanctions, like you said, it does hurt the middle class. It does hurt the uh, the lower classes. And, uh, and if we can actually open up these markets, they would start to see that they can have private property rights, they can have this kind of uh, economic engine that empowers the individual there, and they will then no longer have to accept kind of a more uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, well, sure. Put, put yourself in the shoes of, a, of an average middle-class Iranian uh, you know, mother or father or family and, and think about what they're hearing from their state-run media and the government is because of our sanctions, because of what we're doing, we are the great evil, the great Satan, or whatever you, 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 the term is. And if we would, if we would, maybe take our boot off the neck a bit um, and and start this dialogue and, and start trade and, and these other things, then we're providing, you know. Uh, cheaply manufactured goods. We're providing, you know, food and and, and other things, and and I think that is a, a step in the direction that that basically shows America as a compassionate and an interested nation uh, when when dealing with with not only the regimes but also the the people on the ground who maybe don't necessarily agree with everything that's going on. You know, we've got uh, from an outside invader, an outsider like Iran or whomever to us, we've got this form of government and not everyone agrees so i'm i'm convinced that there are people in iran on the ground who maybe aren't so keen on the form of government um but also there's a, a boogeyman in the united states because the state can say look what they're preventing us from doing look they're preventing you know goods and, and other things to, to travel into our country well scott do you agree with that do you think that uh that uh, embargoes for sure but i mean uh, sanctions to a degree are they're much more limited than they ever have been uh, and that they may actually be more harmful than beneficial in foreign relations? I think it, it, you, you have to find the right balance. I think there certainly can be effective, but as you were alluding to before, Jake, kind of the, the, the approach that these sanctions seem to be taking is that you know we're punishing Iran for doing things that we don't like, whereas you know could be thought, whereas it might be thought of the other way as we could be rewarding them for developments either economically or, or socially or politically that we do like. But unfortunately, kind of the, the bet has been made and we're still lying in it. So I, I don't, it, it doesn't seem realistic to think that the sanctions will, will go away. So I think it's a question of how do we try to reduce them in a way that, that keeps people uh, that, that still uh, keeps people confident that we're being secure and that we're making sure that Iran doesn't kind of go off the deep end, but that try to encourage some of the economic development that you've been talking about. 
Okay. Well, guys, uh, we're actually starting to already run up against time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna grant a time extension here because we got to get to Syria. Uh, so if we can tighten up the answers a little bit, I think we can uh, hammer some stuff home. Uh, with Syria, uh, Barack Obama wanted to do a shot across the bow, fire a few missiles at the Assad regime, and then he and then we kind of found out that there's actually terrorists on the other side that are fighting the Assad regime. There doesn't seem it's a dirty hand scenario, really. But Matt, am I, am I wrong in saying that we should just get in there and teach everybody about freedom and, and invade? You know, I think that the, what we saw last year, which was really sort of fascinating, is is uh, against the president's wishes and against a majority of the the hawks in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans. It was you know Barack Obama siding with Lindsey Graham and John McCain and Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post. That would have been a fun party too, <laughs> with those guys. Yeah. We, like we saw, the wall there. Yeah, and so we saw that that offices were getting called by everyday citizens, people who'd never been involved before, anti-war activists, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, and, and saying, you know, it's not our responsibility. We have overextended ourselves in in two theaters now: Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, over ten years, and we just don't have the resources, be it manpower or the, the finances, to do this. Now, if we wanted to, if we wanted to um, nudge a government or we wanted to uh, assist in something like this, we would have to find the money, and we just, you know, we just don't have the the resources to do it. Uh, of course, we can say. Well, Matt, know, we could certainly print up enough resources. I mean. <laughs> There's a great tool called the Federal Reserve that I know you guys are big fans of. But, uh, no, well, Scott, what do you think? Do you think that uh, – do we need to get involved here? Because it, it seems like a no-win situation, whosever side we kind of back. I mean, would we just be like a police force saying, you guys stay on that side of the line, you guys stay on that side, and, and we'll just sing kumbaya here in the middle? Well, maybe that would be uh, what would be preferable to getting involved in a full – than getting involved in a full-scale war. But, you know, it's interesting to think if their reaction to what's going on in Syria would have been different if it happened uh, before the, the Iraq and Afghanistan situations. But, you know, I, I was even on board with the uh, with the sending in troops idea because obviously Assad had to be stopped. But, of course, since he's kind of backed off and they're you know supposedly talking about uh, uh, having outside people come in and you know, destroy the chemical weapons, you know, that doesn't mean that the war is all of a sudden stopped. You know, there's still lots of, at least from from what I read, what I what I hear, lots of uh, conflict and lots of you know kind of death and destruction going on. So it almost like they went from going too overboard and now they've pulled back and they're not doing enough. I mean, they, just because they're not using chemical weapons doesn't mean that they're still not killing people. Well, right, and I think, uh, and Matt, help me out here because th this is where uh, I agree with a lot of. Uh libertarians on a lot of issues but this is one where I know they get really upset with me because I do think human rights are important um, so I feel as though somehow we need to be involved in a constructive way um, but a lot of uh, kind of uh, you know absolute Ron Paul people will say you know what we can do things diplomatically but in terms of uh, doing any type of attack police work security work uh, sanctions it, it, it's not good is there a way that we could help human rights there, help the average person uh, be that, you know, important bright light in a dark place uh, without getting, without extending ourselves, without overplaying our hand. 
Yeah, well, I, I think the major concern is if we commit troops to an area, what is the public perception? What is what what are the the folks on the ground going to say? And undoubtedly, in in, in many of these scenarios, we've backed the wrong folks. Uh, for, for the last 30 or 40 years, we nine times out of 10, it seems that when we involve ourselves in the inner uh, politics of, of, of a particular nation, we've picked the wrong people. Uh, you know, and, and, and the, it's never more clear than, than for the decades of support uh, in Egypt that, that our government provided. And, and so it's, it's, it's really a a tender situation in any place that we want to involve ourselves in, and, and I think it's it's perfectly relevant and, and, and normal for someone like me or, or you or anyone else to be concerned with the human rights violations, and we should raise our voices uh, about that. But as far as committing troops, I just think it's um, it, it, it could create more enemies than, than than those it might help. Okay. Well, maybe we just need to consider bringing back the old like Abe Lincoln Brigade and, and <laughs> uh, interested citizens can get involved uh, sending themselves over there. No, but uh, uh, well, yeah, guys, you know, just, I, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, just going to have one more thing. It doesn't just have to be the United States and no one else. Like if we were going to do some type of military action, maybe we could do it through NATO, you know, some other type of, uh, of operation. But it seems like, you know, that uh, the fact that we have now kind of uh, accepted the fact that uh, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything. It's like we've almost given Assad a green light to continue doing what he was doing, and that's not good. Well, and and I'll agree with you there, Scott. I, I'm I'm a big supporter, obviously, of multilateralism when it's applicable. But I, I feel as though the European Union and our European allies have really, I mean, uh, their their assistance in <laughs> in allied programs has been very small. That's a whole other topic. I'd like to see us engage uh, countries like Japan and South Korea and uh, even our neighbors to the south in Latin America, uh, more Eastern European nations, uh, nations that are actually interested in kind of that role. But that's like I said, that's a whole other topic. Uh, I just don't think we can continually rely on getting France, Germany and Great Britain and some of the other ones involved and, and helping us out to really uh, kind of make it so it's not just us. But Guys, uh, uh, we, we did run up against time. I really appreciate you guys uh, being on. Uh, Matt Hurt, the, our libertarian uh, activist, and uh, Scott Blyweiss uh, calling in from Bulgaria while he's uh, not teaching English. Uh, <laughs> or you'll be teaching English uh, in the morning, I suppose. <laughs> Coming up soon. Coming up soon. Okay. Thanks, guys, so much for being on. Thank Thanks, you. Matt.